Happy New Year. I don't know how you feel. I always enjoy the break. Each December we do a sabbatical from all of our extracurricular activities. And so as we get into January, we, we are kicking those back off. I always enjoy the break, but I'm always eager to get back to kind of the, the normal swing of things. And that includes for us getting back into 1 Corinthians, all right? We've taken a break from it in the past couple of weeks for Christmas, but we're going to get back into that. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And as you do, I want to tell you about a particular Christmas gift that my son received. My son's name is Cannon. He is uh, two and a half, and uh, he is a typical boy in the sense of he loves trucks and he loves heavy machinery and, uh, and those kinds of things. So uh, a few months back... Uh, I was on a walk with him uh, at the exact same time that a trash truck was coming down our street, and my son got so excited, the, the driver could tell, he had this palpable joy on his face, and so the driver actually stopped and invited us up into his uh, cab, and, uh, and that might have been my son's greatest day of his life. Uh, and so all of the vacations, all of the gifts that we've given him, sitting in a trash truck for like three minutes was the highlight uh, of his life. So he loves trucks, he loves machines, he loves all of those kinds of things. And so a couple of months ago, we were at uh, one of our members' uh, houses for a birthday party for their kid, and that kid had lawn care toys. And my son went crazy. He fell in love with those things. So for Christmas, my in laws gave him a couple of kind of lawn care toys. They gave him a toy blower and they gave him a lawnmower, and he was absolutely. Delighted, But there were two problems with these particular toys uh, and really the lawnmower in particular. One is that my son has absolutely no steering skills. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't care where he goes. Everything to him needs mowing. Right? So he just looks out and says everything needs to be uh, mowed. It doesn't matter what it is. So on Christmas Day, all day at my uh, in-law's house, he would just push it over anything in his path. Other toys my foot, the dog, it didn't matter. Uh, and, uh, and so, in fact, every time he'd crank it on, the dog would go. The dog would run into another room because uh, she knew what was happening. So that was problem number one. Problem number two is that the lawnmower, as you can imagine, is incredibly loud and thus somewhat annoying. I think the toy maker just kind of says, how do we make this as annoying as possible? And so uh, as my son is using it there at my in-law's house, after a couple of hours, my father-in-law, who gave the gift to him, instituted a rule that that is now an outside toy and uh, and so kicked him out and the reason is obviously because my son's use of that one particular gift was a distraction to everyone else's enjoyment of their gifts he's either running over them or he's uh, you know just making this incessant sort of clamor and that's kind of what's happening uh, as we jump back into first corinthians if you recall from last year certain corinthians are using their gifts, this whole section is on spiritual gifts, and certain Corinthians are using their gifts in a way that's distracting to corporate worship. And so the Apostle Paul basically is going to say, take it outside, that's an outside gift, or do that at home. All right? Don't use your gift in a way that discourages and distracts others. So that's what we're going to see uh, today. So prepare ourselves, let's spend a, a moment in prayer. And as we begin, I want to ask you just to pray for yourself first and ask you just to think not of this time, just as some sort of ritualistic sort of thing. Every, every time Jeff uh, preaches, he asks you to pray for yourself or whatever it might be. This isn't just filler or transition time. This is an opportunity 
for you to settle your heart and actually to pray with expectancy that you would encounter the living God. And so would you pray that the Lord would move uh, mightily in your own heart and grant you conviction and repentance and encouragement and comfort and whatever else it might be. And then would you pray a similar prayer for those around you that we corporately would be built up as we consider the text this morning. And then lastly, would you pray for me? So Father, we confess that you're good. Your your mercies are new every morning and that's true every year as well as we begin this new year. I pray that you would bless our church, uh, that we would grow in our love for you, our passion for your kingdom, our affections for your son. I pray that you would use today's text to continue to mold us, shape us, conform us to the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. We'll begin with that. Paul writes, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Given that it's been a, a few weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, let's kind of recap the context of what's going on in 1 Corinthians. Remember, you can't understand any individual passage of Scripture without understanding the greater uh, literary and historical context. So as you may recall, chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians are intended to be read as one unified section. And that unified section is about spiritual gifts. And so far we've seen a number of truths rise to the surface in this section. For example, we have learned that each of us have diverse gifts. We've seen that no gift is irrelevant, that no person has every gift, and kind of the idea there is that we need each other. Uh, You don't have all of the gifts, and so you need others speaking into your life and helping you and so forth. We've seen that the gifts are to be practiced for the good of the body, They're not just for your individual uh, glory or gain or fortune or whatever it might be. And then we've seen that love is the measure and love is the mark of the healthy stewardship of gifts. How do you know that this is a healthy stewarding of the gifts? Does it actually contribute to love? And so that's chapters 12 through 13 in particular. Then in chapter 4, we talked quite a bit about two gifts in particular. Two gifts that we'll talk about again this week. And those gifts are tongues and prophecy. Uh, These are the two gifts that are included in discussions of what are called sign gifts or miraculous gifts. And so when it comes to sign gifts, when it comes to miraculous gifts, when it comes to prophecy, tongues, gifts of healing, workings of miracles today, there are really two theological positions that we've looked at. Both of these positions are considered orthodox. Both of them are considered evangelical. Neither of them is heretical. They're really faithful brothers and sisters on each side of the spectrum. In fact, we have elders on each side of the spectrum. But those two positions are historically called cessationism and continuationism. All right, And uh, within each of those camps, each of those camps themselves represents a spectrum. All right, That's something else that we've seen. Don't judge a book by its cover. The fact that someone is a cessationist doesn't mean... Uh, or the fact that someone is a cessationist doesn't mean that they don't care about the Spirit. The fact that someone is a continuationist doesn't mean that they're necessarily Pentecostal and they think that everyone should speak in tongues or something like that. There's a wide diversity within each of these two 
positions. But here's the crucial question to distinguish between these two camps, these two positions. The difference between continuationism and cessationism boils down to the answer to this question. Have the miraculous gifts, have the sign gifts, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy and tongues, have these gifts ceased, cessationism, or are they available today? Do they continue, which is continuationism? So that's the context. How you answer that question will drive how you read chapter 14 and especially how you seek to apply this in your own life. Now, it seems like the Corinthians have a particular problem. If we look at this uh, in, in regards to the larger context of 1 Corinthians and what we know historically, the problem is that they are all about tongues. For them, tongues is the ultimate mark of spirituality. It's the ultimate mark of maturity. Some churches are all about theology. Some churches love money. Some churches love politics. Some churches love courting the opinion of popular culture. But the Corinthians, what they loved more than anything, seems to be the gift of tongues. And we've seen Paul speak into this context, and he said, hold on a second, tongues are great. He's not against tongues, he's pro-tongue, but he says they are, or they can be, distracting. They can be distracting not only to the members of the church, but also to outsiders, if you're speaking in tongues and no one can understand, then no one is edified. No one is encouraged. It's like that toy uh, lawnmower. Or to use the language of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, it's a noisy gong or a clanging uh, cymbal. And so for that purpose, Paul was going to say, rather than tongues, he's going to prefer prophecy, which we defined as supernaturally given insight into a situation. That insight might be uh, something that God is doing in the future, it might be insight into something that's existing already in the present. It might be something that happened in the past. Prophecy is used in each of those ways in Scripture, uh, future, present, or, uh, or past. But where continuationists and cessationists disagree on the nature of prophecy is in regards to how infallible it is, how authoritative prophecy is today. Cessationists say... That New Testament prophecy, the prophecy that we see that uh, Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians, prophecy that you see in the book of Acts, and so forth, they would say that New Testament prophecy is just like Old Testament prophecy. And therefore, it's authoritative and infallible. That is one of, if not the main argument that many cessationists have for why they think the sign gifts have ceased. They say because if someone were to prophesy today and that prophecy has the same authority as the Old Testament, that would hugely compromise the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And I certainly am sympathetic to that concern. I agree that if modern prophecy were infallibly authoritative, that would compromise our doctrine of Scripture. And if that were the case, I would be a cessationist because I don't want anything competing with Scripture. But I don't think that New Testament prophecy is necessarily infallibly authoritative. Right? I think that's too restrictive in regards to understanding the nature of prophecy. In fact, it's, it's actually because I'm so convinced of the authority and the sufficiency and the unique glory of Scripture that I actually am a continuationist because I don't see cessationism in the Bible. It seems weird to me to say that I support cessationism in order to protect the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, although cessationism itself I don't see in Scripture. All right? I'm going to add some doctrine to Scripture in order to guard against anyone adding to Scripture. 
All right, so that's what it seems to me. That's just my opinion. Again, we have elders, we have members who are cessationists, and I know they wouldn't have that same conviction. But why do I think that prophecy today isn't necessarily infallibly authoritative? This is my last sermon in 1 Corinthians 14, so I figured I would give you some reasons for why I land where I land, though that's not where all of our elders land. So let me give you five reasons why I don't think that uh, modern prophecy should be considered uh, infallibly authoritative, right? A couple of these will be really relevant to our text today, so this is why I saved it to the very end, all right? Number one, the nature of Old Testament prophecy itself was diverse. Old Testament prophecy itself wasn't just some sort of monolithic thing. That's one of the problems I have with a lot of the arguments for cessationism. It says, cessationism basically says that New Testament prophecy is just like Old Testament prophecy, But the problem with that is that there is no just Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy itself was varied. You have prophecies like those that are written in Isaiah and Ezekiel. But you also have prophecies that are things like David, uh, I'm sorry, Nathan knowing that David had committed adultery. Or King Saul when he prophesies ecstatically. And so the nature of Old Testament prophecy itself is very diverse. The second reason for not thinking that modern prophecy is infallibly authoritative is that you'll see an example, at least one, where Paul disobeys a prophetic word in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Paul is explicitly told in the Spirit, in a prophecy, he's told not to go to Jerusalem. But what does he do? He goes to Jerusalem, right? He disobeys that. Now, Paul was a sinner. Paul's not Jesus. So it's possible that he could have gone and been sinning and doing so, but the narrative seems to suggest that by going, Paul is not sinning, that Paul's actions are righteous. In other words, what you have in this particular case, in the book of Acts, it seems like this prophetic word tells Paul to do something that he doesn't do, and the Bible actually commends him, which seems to suggest at the very least that the prophetic word didn't carry Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, infallible authority. A third reason for where I land is that certain instances of of prophecy in the New Testament seem to have some details that aren't entirely accurate. For example, Agabus in the book of Acts, he prophesies that the Jews are going to bind Paul and deliver him over to the Romans. But when you actually read the narrative of what happens, it's actually the Romans who end up binding Paul to protect them from the Jews. And so given how precise God is in the Old Testament with exact details being fulfilled, it might be significant that there are these instances in the New Testament where prophecy seems to have this sort of overarching truth, but it's mixed a bit in the details with the the degree of fallible interpretation by man. A fourth argument is actually from our passage today where there's this command to assess and to evaluate prophecies which again doesn't seem to fit the overarching Old Testament pattern. In the Old Testament, you would assess whether or not someone was a true or false prophet, but once that was already established, you didn't judge or evaluate their prophecies. In fact, to do so would have been sin. If Isaiah comes to you and says, thus saith the Lord, you don't have the opportunity to say, I'm going to evaluate for myself whether or not that's actually from the Lord. And yet we'll see in our passage today That when it comes to New Testament prophecy, God commands that the uh, congregation evaluate, to assess, and to weigh the the various prophecies that are spoken. And then fifth, and a final reason why I land where I, uh, I land, 
is that in the Old Testament, there seemed to be this idea that for a prophet to fail to speak a prophetic word was sin. If you're Ezekiel, if you're Jonah, for instance, and you're called to go and preach the gospel, to call the the Ninevites to repentance, and you refuse to go, that is sin. Whereas in our passage today, it seems like God expects someone with a prophetic word to occasionally just choose to sit on it. Choose to not share it. We'll see that in our passage. So that's where I land, where I do, uh, in thinking that modern prophecy is a word from God that is mixed with human interpretation and thus is not infallible. You don't have to land there. Again, to be a member of Parkway, you can hold to continuationism or cessationism. At the end of the day, both camps agree that prophecy is some sort of supernaturally given insight. And that Paul prefers prophecy, at least in his context, to tongues because not only does prophecy serve to edify the body, but it also to evangelize outsiders. And that's all context. That's all we've done thus far. We just recap the context. Now he gets to some more specific application in our text this morning. So let's read that again. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. He says that when the church is gathered, and by the way, this is an argument for regularly attending church. The church, by definition, is a gathering. That's what the word uh, ecclesia originally means, is a gathering and assembly of people. You can watch the church from home, but you can't actually do the church. You can't actually be the church from home. Even though there are some churches, a new church just opened in McKinney or is about to open in McKinney that has uh, virtual services and you can do virtual communion where you press a button and your wine glass is emptied in front of you on the computer screen. No matter how many churches do those absurd things, that's not church. The church by its very uh, definition is a gathering. So when the church is gathered, people are participating in various ways as we see here in 1 Corinthians. This corresponds, by the way, to what we saw in chapter 12, that the church is this body that's composed of various members. Each of those members has diverse gifts. Some can sing, some can teach, etc. Now you might read this list of activities here in 1 Corinthians, and you might look around at our context here at Parkway or even just the uh, the, the larger, broader evangelical context, and you might think, why don't we do all of this? In most of our services, it seems like only a handful of people are really exercising their gifts. Someone is preaching, all right? Someone is praying. Tim, maybe one or two others are leading worship. Someone is running sound. But it kind of seems like we aren't really allowing every member to exercise their gifts. And in one sense, that's kind of true. The Corinthian context doesn't quite fit our 21st century American context for a church service. So the question is, is that a problem? And I don't think it's necessarily a problem for a few reasons. First, because Paul doesn't command that all of these things have to take place. Notice that. This isn't a command here in 1 Corinthians 14. We've seen him throughout 1 Corinthians 14 give hypothetical examples throughout this section. For example, earlier he used the illustration of everyone in the church speaking in tongues. And yet he explicitly says that... He has forbidden that from happening, all right? So here Paul's point isn't that you have to have a hymn and you have to have a lesson and you have to have a revelation and you have to have tongues and you have to have interpretation. The point is that whatever you do, whatever you have, whether it's a hymn or a lesson or whatever, everything must be done for building up. 
That's the first reason that I don't think that this is a problem, because this is not a command. Second, I don't think it's a problem that only a handful of people are exercising their gifts, because I don't actually think that that's true. Right, right now, as I speak, some of you may have the gift of prayer. And as I'm preaching, maybe you're praying for me. Maybe you're praying for the congregation. Others show up early and uh, set out the communion elements. Or others show up early in order to practice the gift of hospitality uh, or encouragement. Right now, there are dozens of members of the church that are serving the church in preschool. Deacons are, are, are counting uh, uh, offerings and counting uh, attendance and those kinds of things. And so there are a number of people who are exercising their gifts even right now um, that are just uh, behind the scenes. So that's another reason that I don't think it's a problem that not everyone gets to exercise their gifts. And finally, I don't think this is a problem because we encourage other gatherings besides this weekend gathering. Maybe you have the gift of teaching. We're not thwarting your gift of teaching. You might never have a chance to actually stand on this stage and have a mic and teach the entire congregation. That doesn't mean that you can't teach. You could talk to us about starting a community group. You could just uh, unilaterally decide that you want to start a Bible study or start a book study or uh, disciple a handful of other people, whatever that uh, might look like. You not only have our permission for that you have our encouragement that's part of what we that's part of the reason that we're doing what we're doing in theological equipping this semester and applied theology is to teach you how not only to be discipled but also to help make disciples we want you to do personal discipleship now this is a, a bit of a philosophical shift for many of us it, many of you if you grew up in most i think uh, traditional sort of churches most of us kind of grew up thinking that Sunday is kind of game day. Sunday's the day when the church gathers and that's when we play the game. That's when we put on our uniform, all right? And so in certain churches, that's a suit and tie or whatever it might be. That's the day you put on your uniform and you come together and you actually play the game. And then you go home and you don't play again until next week. In reality, that's not the case at all. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite of the reality. Sunday isn't game day. Game day for the Christian should be Monday through Saturday. That's when you have the most chances to exercise your gifts, to build up your family, your community group, your coworkers, your neighbors, etc. So what is Sunday? Sunday's not game day. Sunday is Sunday is practice. The Sunday gathering is when you come in order to be equipped. What's the role of a pastor and teacher according to the book of Ephesians to equip who? The saints for the work of Ministry. I think Sunday is less about the church using their individual gifts and it's more about being equipped and encouraged so that you might use them throughout the rest of the week. So our contemporary church service looks a bit different from the Corinthian context. I don't think that's a problem as long as we're holding fast to this controlling command, Paul's main point here, which is that all things be done for building up. That's the litmus test. If you want to know how serious this command is, if you want to know how serious Paul is about this particular thing being what controls the way that we do worship, consider the fact that Paul has already said this, that this is most important in chapter 14, verse 3, chapter 14, verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, verse 17, and even earlier in the book, not speaking about gifts in particular, but just church life in general in chapters 8 and chapters 10. He says that what is most important is what is most loving 
And that is defined as that which builds up the body. So this is a really big deal to Paul. This call to build up the body has marked most of our uh, past couple of months in 1 Corinthians. This is the purpose of gifts. Why do you have the gifts that you have? To build up the body of Christ. So what does that mean practically as it relates to these particular sign gifts? Let's look at verses 27 through 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Now, sometimes passages of Scripture are really confusing. Even uh, Peter, when he's writing uh, his epistle, he says that some of Paul's uh, writings are difficult to understand. But here we get to a passage that really isn't complicated at all. A lot of us might have a, a lot of questions about tongues, whether or not tongues exist, what are tongues, all of those sorts of things. But at least once we've established that, the passage itself is pretty clear. It's a pretty clear sort of passage. You read this and you're not confused about what Paul is saying, which makes it all the more ironic, given that the gift of tongues has been so incredibly abused within much of the modern charismatic movement. It's almost like they've just decided to ignore this text completely, right? Paul says... Only let a couple speak. Many modern charismatics, such as the Pentecostals, would say everyone should have a turn. All right. Paul says, only do it with an interpreter. Many charismatics would say, no interpreter, no problem. Paul says, go in order. Each person go in turn. Many charismatics would say, let's just talk over each other. All right. This is the, the problem with much of the modern charismatic movement. The problem isn't the use of the gifts. The problem is the use of and the exaltation of the gifts over the commands of Scripture. When any gift is used in a way that contradicts Scripture, that's a problem. We see that with sex. Sex is a gift. Who created sex? Who imagined sex? God. And within the context of heterosexual monogamous marriage, it's a good gift. But when practiced outside of that context, it's a sin. Or alcohol. Alcohol is a gift. God imagined the process by which alcohol is made. He imagined fermentation and all of those sorts of things. And when practiced within moderation, it's a gift. It's good. When done in excess, it's sin. So the gifts of the Spirit are just that. They're gifts. And yet when not exercised in accordance with God's will, the result is not only chaos and confusion as we've seen, but sin. So what does Paul, or what does God in particular, uh, say about the regulation of the gifts? Well, he seems to imply that tongues shouldn't be central. Notice that there should be only two or in most three. In other words, this is kind of the exception and not the rule. Why? Because in Corinth, this is what, uh, in Corinth, this is what everyone wanted to show off. So Paul is going to actually downplay it. And the second thing he says is that tongues should be orderly that each should do it in turn. By the way, this is one of the reasons, although it's not in the context of tongues, but in prayer, but this is one of the reasons that when we do corporate prayer here at Parkway, we don't do the type of corporate prayer where everyone just prays out loud at the same time. Lots of churches do that. I heard a pastor once say that everyone in the church should just pray out loud at the same time because God is big enough to hear all of our prayers at once. And I thought, well, of course God is big enough to hear all of our prayers. That's not the problem. The problem is I'm not big enough to hear your prayers if I'm also praying out loud. And there's value in being orderly. If your prayer is supposed to build up the church, 
If other people can't hear it, they can't be edified. They can't utter their amen to your prayer because they don't know what it actually is. So there's value in being orderly, not for God's sake, but for our sake. Third, uh, Paul says here that there must be an interpreter. Notice that. If there is no interpreter, then that person should stay quiet. In other words, it isn't like tongues is just some sort of uncontrollable urge. It isn't like someone's possessed or something like that. That was actually the case with many of the, Megan, uh, the, the pagan Megan, the pagan mystery religions uh, uh, of the, uh, the first century. The adherence there, their goal was to enter into some sort of frenzied state, like a puppet being controlled by someone else. And so Paul contrasts that. Paul expects that with the gifts of the Spirit, the Christian is still in control. In fact, what's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Self-control. So if there is no interpretation, he says, there should be no speaking in tongues. Now, this question of interpretation brings up a host of other questions is it the person who speaks in tongues who is supposed to interpret themselves? Or is it someone else with the gift of interpretation who is uh, interpreting? Uh, if someone else, how do you, as the tongue speaker, know that there's going to be interpretation? What if you have the gift of tongues and you expect someone else, you know, you know Ted over there, has the gift of interpretation, so you expect, I'm going to speak in tongues, Ted's going to interpret, Ted decides, I'm not going to interpret that. They, Paul doesn't answer these sorts of questions, all right? He just says that interpretation is necessary. Why? We talked about this last month because no one is built up, no one is edified, no one is encouraged if they can't understand what's actually being said, if there's no interpretation. The church isn't encouraged and neither are outsiders. We used the illustration uh, before of hoarding. All right? If, you, if you've ever been around someone who is a hoarder, like a true hoarder, not just someone who is a bit of a pack rat, but someone who's a true hoarder, that's terribly unhealthy for those who are in the house, and it's also terribly, terribly discomforting for visitors. And that's like uninterpreted tongues. If there is no one to interpret, rather than speaking out loud in tongues, the person should speak to themselves and to God. Take it outside, take it home, as my father-in-law might say. Which could mean that you should pray silently in tongues even, maybe like a private prayer language or something like that. Paul doesn't really say, I don't want to comment or speculate on that but that's the borders that he gives regarding tongues if you're a continuationist and you think that tongues are still available these are the parameters by the way we've mentioned this before a number of times but what we think is most edifying as the elders and what the church historically has thought is most edifying doesn't include tongues and prophecy within this gathering so that's if you're worried that we're going to go crazy charismatic because i happen to be a continuationist and jared happens to be a continuationist that's not happening Right? And so I am utterly convinced that uh, that is not what's most edifying and encouraging for us. What is the things that we currently do? We pray, we sing, we read scripture, we preach scripture, and, uh, and that's pretty much uh, it. But those are the parameters as it relates to tongues in whatever context they are uh, going to be uh, exercised. Now let's look at prophecy, verses 29 through 30. Let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So yet again, Paul is going to mention this gift and he's going to regulate that gift and provide some helpful boundaries for us. It's like uh, if you go bowling and they put up the bumpers there, right? They, they, those don't guarantee that you're going to get a strike, but they do pr protect you from the gutter. 
And that's what these parameters do. They don't guarantee that you'll be awesome at tongues or prophecy or other miraculous gifts, but at least they keep you from sinning. So how does Paul regulate prophecy? He gives these three parameters. First, as with tongues, the number of speakers is limited. Interestingly, he doesn't say at most uh, two or three as he does with tongues. So it might be appropriate in his context for four or five to speak. His point here isn't so much to limit the number of, uh, of speakers as it, allow, uh, as it is to allow for there to be uh, adequate opportunity to test the prophecy, as we'll see. And that's an important uh, part of the process uh, in our uh, next verse. Number two, he tells someone who is speaking to stop speaking if someone else has a prophecy to share. Right, how he would know that someone else has a prophecy, he doesn't say. Maybe that person stands up. Maybe that person's holding the prophetic conch or something like that, whatever it might be. So that's the second way that he, he regulates the gift. And the third way that he regulates is, is he, as we'll see in our next uh, passage, he expects the assembly to evaluate and appraise what is said. All right, he expects them to weigh, to assess, to judge the prophecy. Now, one of the reasons that cessationists uh, often point to for thinking that the gifts have ceased is the idea that uh, no one today can just heal anyone they come into contact with. They say that someone with the gift of teaching can always teach, and, uh, and so they can just kind of exercise that gift at will. And so, therefore, they conclude that if someone had the gift of healing, they should be able to heal at will. Why not just go empty the hospitals? Right? Kenneth Copeland tried that this past year. He spit at COVID. Unfortunately, he's a false teacher, so it didn't work, all right? But uh, that's kind of the argument, is that uh, if you have a gift, then you should be able to exercise it at will, and therefore the gifts don't ex uh, uh, exist today because we don't see that sort of authority, whatever it might be. That the gifts can exist today because no one seems to have that level of healing ability. In light of that, I think it's really interesting. Notice here, Paul uses the language of if a revelation is made to another. In other words, Paul doesn't envision someone with the gift of prophecy being able to prophesy at will. Even someone with that gift. Everyone agrees that people had that gift in the first century. Even someone with that gift in the first century couldn't do so whenever they wanted, but rather they were dependent on the Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit would give a prophetic word, and sometimes he wouldn't. And I think, the, I think the same would be true with other gifts as well, whether tongues or healing or whatever it might be. So there are other reasons... There are other good reasons to, to consider the arguments for cessationism, but I don't think that the fact that no one today seems to be able to exercise their assigned gifts at will is really a good argument for cessationism. Now, I want to I focus on the middle part of the text. Notice this admonition to let the others weigh what is said. Some people have said that others there means other prophets. Some have said this relates to the elder body. But kind of the most common interpretation is that others refers to the congregation. I mentioned earlier, this is one of the, what I think is one of the strongest arguments for the idea that modern prophecy is not uh, infallible. It's not necessarily authoritative in the same way that you see with Isaiah or Ezekiel or John the Baptist or something like that. Think back to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. We read this a couple of months ago. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for, uh, as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But notice here, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Notice immediately after talking about prophecies, Paul says that we know in part and that our knowledge is partial. 
In fact, I would say that no gift today is infallible. I hope that my teaching is faithful, but also know that I've misspoken. All right? Some of you have come up to me and told me that I've misspoken. All right? In fact, I think I said that uh, David and uh, Mary, David was married to Mary. I think I said that in my Christmas Eve. And so like three people came up to me afterwards and said, hey, that's not accurate. And I was like, I know, I just misspoke. All right? So I hope that my teaching is, is faithful, but I misspeak. I misunderstand things. I get things wrong all the time. So someone with a gift of hospitality, likewise, they might fail in exercising that gift at times. Likewise, someone with the gift of prayer maybe isn't always exercising that in the best way or whatever it might be. God's gifts are good, but our use of those gifts are always going to be somewhat tainted and limited by our own limitations, by our own flaws, by our own weaknesses, no matter what the gift. That was what was so unique about the apostolic teaching and what is so unique about Scripture. It alone is preserved from error. I'm not preserved from error. I'm not like the Pope speaking at cathedra. All right? I err all the time. I'm fallible. Scripture alone has that sort of authority. And yet the fact that something can be errant doesn't mean we avoid our best. The fact that I err when I preach doesn't mean I just never preach again. All right? The, the fact that something can be errant, the, the fact that a gift can be uh, used in a way that's not actually in accordance with God's will doesn't mean you just give up exercising those gifts and don't seek to be faithful, especially because God is going to provide some helpful correctives. When it comes to prophecy, he invites us to assess and evaluate prophecy. And by the way, by implication, I would say this also provides merit for testing what is taught, testing what is preached each week. If you have questions or concerns about what I say or Jared says or any of our elders or any other staff member or whatever it might be, you don't have to bite your tongue. That's the last thing that you should do. You should be gracious and you should be humble in the way that you bring up those concerns, but those concerns are welcomed. In fact, you don't just have permission, you have encouragement from the elders. Besides God himself, no one is less happy with me preaching falsehood than I am. I need iron to sharpen iron. We should be like the Bereans who examined the scriptures to test what was being taught. So that should be a part of our rhythm. That should be a part of the, the culture here at Parkway. But back to prophecy, Paul says to evaluate it and to assess it. And this is really interesting given how quickly the early church kind of said, nope, not going to do that. In fact, in the early patristic writing, the Didache, which is a collection of early church traditions, you find this, you shall not test or examine any prophet who is speaking in the Spirit. It's like the exact opposite of what Paul wrote within a generation of Paul writing it, right? And that's kind of hard to square with not only 1 Corinthians 14, but also 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21. Do not despise uh, prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. When it says to test everything, surely that includes prophecy, which was literally just mentioned, so this is a command. God commands his people to test prophecy. So how do we do that? Paul doesn't say explicitly, but I think we can infer a few things from the surrounding context. Let me give you these uh, four criterias for assessing prophecy. Again, that's not going to be something that we do here corporately. That might be a part of your family. That might be a part of your community group. That might be a part of your Bible study or whatever it might be. So here are the four requirements uh, or at least four of them 
this is not exhaustive. First, is the prophecy done in an orderly manner? If not, it doesn't seem to be from the Spirit, since the Spirit is a spirit of peace and order, as we'll see in this text and as we've already seen in 1 Corinthians. Second thing, does it accord with Scripture? Someone walks up to me and says, I have a word from the Lord from you. First off, I would say, you probably shouldn't say, you have a word from the Lord from me. Just say, I have something to share. would probably be a better way to say it. But if their word from the Lord is, I need to cheat on Casey, it's pretty easy to identify that as being false, right? So does it accord with Scripture, which means you need to know Scripture. How do you test prophecy? You need to know Scripture. Third category or criteria is what I call the criteria of the corporate leading of the Spirit. For example, let's say that you think that the church should do X. Well, I think that the way that the Spirit would work would be to give the church in general a similar conviction, a similar sense of that prompting. I'm not saying that every single elder or every single member would necessarily agree, but I think that there would be a general consensus, a general sense of the Spirit leading us in that particular direction. Right? That's kind of like if someone were to, to, to walk up to you and to say, the Spirit told me you need to quit your job. I think a perf- perfectly reasonable response for you to be would be, well, as soon as he tells me that, I'm happy to do it. Right? If New Testament prophecy is revelation mixed with human interpretation, then that means that even the person who has a legitimate word from the Lord might be mistaken in various details. So allow others into that conversation. There should be this corporate element to help discern the truth. And then a fourth criteria for assessing prophecy is whether or not it promotes the edification and encouragement of the community. Remember, that's the underlying drumbeat for all of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Are there other criteria? I'm sure there are. This is uh, at least where I would start, though. Is it orderly? Is it biblical? Is it something that the community uh, or a, a larger group is corporately sensing? And is it encouraging and edifying? keep going verses uh, 31 through 32 for you can all prophesy one by one so that uh, all may learn and be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets so again you see the need for order and this principle of edification the goal is that the church as a whole might learn might be encouraged might be built up that's where you get edification is from the the word edifice like a building being built up You see also, again, that self-control is necessary. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. The urge to prophecy is not this uncontrollable sort of urge. It's not this frenzied sort of state. It's always strange if you watch clips of really hyper-charismatic church services. You see just how disorderly and chaotic it is. It's not only tragic, but it's ironic. And this effort to uh, at least ostensibly to follow the Spirit's leading that someone would disobey the Spirit's word in Scripture and would disregard the fruit of the Spirit which includes patience and self-control and would therefore demean the very character of the Spirit since God, as we'll see in verse 33a, is a God of order and peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 33a For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Why does God command order and peace within our worship? Because our worship is intended to be a reflection uh, of what we believe about God himself. Our worship, our liturgy, should reflect something about God's 
character. In other words, how we worship says something about who we worship. Jared talked about that a little bit in theological equipping today as we began uh, talking about uh, discipleship. That Trinitarianism isn't just some abstract ivory tower sort of doctrine. It, inf- uh, it affects your marriage. It affects the way that you uh, discipline your kids and disciple your kids. It, it affects the way that you uh, understand y- your money and work and, and hobbies and, and on and on. We go. All theology is practical. It's applicational. So how we worship says something about who we worship. If you want to know why Paul has beaten this dead horse, we've been in 1 Corinthians for a couple of months now. It's because of this basic hermeneutical principle. From the beginning of creation, God has been ordering chaos. Even before sin entered in the world, he was ordering chaos. In Genesis, the earth is void and formless, and God orders it. He not only creates light in the midst of darkness, but peace in the midst of conflict and order in the midst of chaos. The tragic irony of 1 Corinthians as it relates to the gifts is that these Corinthians, they think that they're following the Spirit, and yet the disorders that we see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, the disorders that you see in Corinth demonstrate that they aren't actually following the Spirit. They're just following their own desires. They're following their own preferences. They're not really emphasizing the gifts of the Spirit. They're emphasizing sin. And the result is chaos. It's confusion. It's disorder. Let's look at James 3.16. I want to end with this, or begin to end at least. James 3.16-17. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. At the end of the day, what will destroy Parkway? Hopefully it's nothing. But what will destroy Parkway isn't continuationism or cessationism. One of those is right, the other is wrong. That isn't something that we should divide over. What will destroy Parkway isn't humble theological disagreement. It isn't that some people have miraculous gifts and some don't. What will destroy Parkway is pride. What will destroy us is selfish ambition and jealousy. That's what actually tears down the body. But wisdom and purity and peacefulness and gentleness and reasonableness and mercy builds up the church. So we really end this text with where we've ended just about every text over the, fa- the past few chapters as you think not only about your gifts but also your relationship to this church and the people in the church? Is your heart motivated by a love for self or is it motivated by a love for God that's demonstrated as a love for others as evidenced by selflessly serving them for their good? Do you use your gifts? Do you use your talents? Do you use your time? Do you use all of these things for the building up of God's kingdom or for the building up of your own, which actually tears down the church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for uh, these words, and I thank you again for an opportunity for us to uh, consider the gifts, not just to consider them from a theological perspective of trying to figure out continuationism versus cessationism, but for us to really seek to 
understand that all of the gifts that you have given to us are not just to terminate on us, but are ultimately to be extended horizontally to others and are to resonate vertically back to praise unto you. And so I pray that you would help us to have a, uh, a healthy, uh, good, loving, humble understanding of the gifts and that you would unite us as a body. I know that the enemy would seek nothing more than for there to be selfish ambition and jealousy and pride and so forth, tear down this body. And so I pray against his works and pray that uh, by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus Christ that you would protect us and that we might grow in our love for one another and our extension of your love to a lost and dying world. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we pray in Christ's name, amen.